Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, today, President Obama became the first sitting U.S. president to visit Hiroshima, Japan. We'll find out how he marked that occasion in the coming days, but reportedly he will not apologize for the fact that the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on that city on August 6, 1945. All these years later, what have we learned from our historic use of nuclear weapons? And given their terrible destructive force, why have we not banned them? This talk by Dr. Ira Helfand offers detailed insights into the dangers of nuclear proliferation and war. He covers the risks of the U.S.-Russia and India-Pakistan conflicts, the threat of terrorism, the North Korean wild card, the real possibility of an accidental war, and how a modern nuclear war would impact humans and the environment. Dr. Helfand is a co-president of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War and a co-founder and past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility. He practices medicine in Massachusetts. Helfand spoke on the topic of combating the growing danger of nuclear war at Town Hall Seattle on March 20th. Thank you to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Here, former Washington Physicians for Responsibility President Evan Cantor introduces Dr. Ira Helfand. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming out tonight. Before uh, I introduce our speaker, I would like to say a couple of quick thank yous. We have two co-sponsors for this event. Uh, Thank you to the United Nations Association, uh, Greater Seattle Chapter, and also thanks to the Henry Jackson School for International Studies, our co-sponsors for uh, this event. I should say my name is Evan Cantor. I am a longtime PSR activist. I'm a past president of the Washington Chapter and a past national PSR president. I also want to thank uh, KUOW, who is here tonight, not not only for recording this event, but for everything um, that they do for the community. So I have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Ira Helfand. Um, Ira is co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, IPPNW. This organization was the recipient of the 1985 Nobel Peace Prize. He is a co-founder and past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, which is the U.S. affiliate of IPPNW. He has published studies on the medical consequences of nuclear war in the New England Journal of Medicine and the British Medical Journal, and has lectured widely in many countries uh, around the world on the health effects of nuclear weapons. He presented the report, Nuclear Famine, One Billion People at Risk, at the Nobel Peace Laureates Summit in Chicago in April of 2012. Dr. Helfand was educated at Harvard College and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, He is a former chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine and president of the medical staff at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. 
and currently practices as an internist and urgent care physician at Family Care Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. He lives with his wife, Deborah Smith, a medical oncologist in Leeds, Massachusetts. I've been watching Ira speak truth to power for a long time now. He, he is deliberate, he's wise, and he's unstoppable. If Ira ever gets tired, um, he doesn't seem to show that. Um, he's really one of a few individuals who are the backbone of the uh, physician's anti-nuclear movement. And he has been for decades. I tell my students that the model of a physician activist is someone who combines scientific integrity and moral authority. Ira is a stellar example of this. If you were faced yourself with a medical emergency and you were on your way to the ER, this is the man that you would want to see. And when our planet is having a medical emergency, this is the man you want to listen to. Dr. Helfer. Uh, thank you for that uh, overly kind introduction, Evan. Um, I want to talk to you tonight about nuclear war. Um, this is not an easy thing to, to talk about or for you to listen to, and I very much appreciate your coming out on a Sunday evening to hear what I have to say. Um, there was a time just a, a few decades ago when all of us understood the danger posed by nuclear weapons. Uh, millions of people around the world were actively engaged in a campaign to eliminate these weapons and to prevent nuclear war. And the reality of nuclear uh, weaponry, uh, the danger posed to human survival, was deeply understood by, by all of these people, by many millions more who weren't active. Um, that period of activity, of, of, of activism, was enormously important. It led to real changes in public policy, it put enormous pressure on the governments of the Soviet Union and the United States and played a critical role in changing the nuclear policies that were in place at that time. I think a lot of us who were active then worried at times that we, we were being alarmist, that we were unnecessarily burdening people with fears about how dangerous nuclear weapons were. It, it turns out that we weren't that the things that we said then were, were not only true, but we probably, despite our efforts to get it right, were underestimating the full magnitude of the danger. And it turns out that the work that we did then in motivating people to pressure their governments was critically important. Uh, in his memoirs, Mikhail Gorbachev specifically references the work done by physicians and the meetings that he had with members of IPPNW in fundamentally changing his understanding of the danger posed by nuclear weapons and leading him to undertake the series of initiatives which he launched in the mid-1980s, uh, which the United States eventually joined and which led to the end of the Cold War arms race and helped to bring about the end of the Cold War itself. This is an immense achievement of citizen activism and one which we urgently need to recreate today. 
Because the problem is that when the Cold War ended, we, all of us, began to act as though these weapons had gone away. They should have. They were built, for the most part, to fight the Cold War. And when the Cold War ended, any rationale for their existence uh, ended at that point. But the weapons didn't go away. And in fact, there are today about 15,000 nuclear warheads in the world. About 95% are in the arsenals of the United States and Russia. The rest are shared by seven other nuclear weapon states, the United United Kingdom, France, China, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. And these weapons continue to pose really an existential threat to human survival. There are three dimensions of the nuclear threat that I want to talk to you about tonight, and let me go through them each sequentially. First is the possibility, the problem that we face that there might be an act of nuclear terrorism. To the extent that people talk about nuclear weapons at all, this is what they tend to focus on. And there's some reason for that. This is a real serious problem. We know that terrorist groups, uh, specifically al-Qaeda, have been trying for at least 25 years to obtain nuclear materials. Uh, We know that there are fully assembled nuclear arsenal, nuclear weapons in the arsenals of Pakistan and probably still in Russia that are not optimally guarded and are potentially subject to theft. And we know that there are about 2,000 tons of fissile material, uh, plutonium and highly enriched uranium, stored in more than 40 countries around the world, uh, much of it with very little security. And it only takes a few pounds of either one of these materials to make a nuclear weapon. That's the hard part, getting the plutonium or the highly enriched uranium. Once you have that, it's relatively easy to make a crude nuclear device. You can go online and read directions on how to do this. And so there's a real concern that terrorists might obtain either a weapon or the fissile material to build their own and use this. And the effects of this would be quite catastrophic. There have been a number of studies about this. Uh, The paper that I published in the British Medical Journal in 2002, shortly after September 11th, looked at a scenario where a terrorist group built uh, a crude bomb about the size of the Hiroshima uh, uh, bomb and basically mailed it to the United States, put it on a cargo ship, uh, and programmed it to detonate uh, as it approached the pier in in Manhattan. Under this scenario, much of the explosive forces dissipated over the the water in in New York Harbor. But even so, this explosion kills about 44,000 people outright from the the blast and the fire, and another 10,000 people are exposed to lethal doses of radiation emanating from the bomb at the moment of detonation. In addition, about a million and a half people are exposed to significant levels of radioactive fallout. Uh, this is a ground-level burst. It generates a great deal of local fallout, and it's carried by prevailing westerly winds over Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn, Long Island, very densely populated areas. About a million and a half people get exposed, and of these, about 250,000 people receive lethal doses of radiation if they are not promptly evacuated or sheltered. And the fact is that Neither New York nor any other city in the United States has in place a plan to evacuate or shelter in place any significant number of people. And so the death toll from this terrorist attack on New York would probably be in the range of about 300,000 people. And to put that into perspective, during all of World War II, about 440,000 Americans were killed. And that was over the four years of the war. This would be in about a week's time. The economic disruption caused by this is is literally incalculable. There was a study done about 15 years ago looking at a similar scenario that assumed, (laughs) excuse me, 
that the uh, economic uh, damage would be in the range of a trillion dollars. Uh, in that scenario, the bomb went off in New York Harbor, but not in Manhattan, across the river on the Jersey side of the harbor. Um, I think that that study was a tremendous underestimate of what would happen. Uh, for one thing, if bomb went off in Manhattan, we're talking about some of the most valuable real estate in the world. But even more important than the destruction of property in, in, in Manhattan is the effect on the global economy. I mean, Wall Street would be shut down. Uh, the economic uh, financial markets around the world would shut down. Uh, the day after um, the um, attack on, on September 11th, the markets fell uh, you know, more than 15%. After something like this, we would expect the markets probably to collapse. Uh, in addition, there'd be a complete disruption of international trade. Uh, ports around the world would close themselves uh, out of fear that they might be the next target of a terrorist attack of this sort. Again, we saw this after September 11th when uh, airline traffic was suspended for weeks. And I think the same thing would happen to, uh, to shipping traffic after an attack of this sort. And the ripple effect throughout the global economy would probably be many trillions of dollars. Uh, an attack like this would also have a profound effect on the way we live subsequently. Uh, civil rights, as we know them, I think would just go out the door. Faced with the fear that there might be another attack using nuclear weapons, uh, I think all of us would tolerate a degree of intrusiveness into our lives that is just unacceptable or unimaginable today. But it would be the new norm. And so there is good reason to be concerned about a nuclear terrorist attack but we have to understand this is the least of the dangers that we face. Uh, the next step up in level of concern is the possibility of a limited nuclear war between smaller nuclear weapon states. And the model which has attracted the most attention, the most concern, is the possibility of a war between India and Pakistan. These countries have gone to war uh, three times since their independence from Britain in, in the late 40s. They've come close to war on two more occasions, there is daily fighting between India and Pakistan at the line of demarcation in Kashmir. And there have been a couple of incidents in the last 15 years when a terrorist attack directed against India and believed to have originated from groups based in Pakistan led to um, military mobilization on both sides. Now, the current situation in South Asia is that the Indian conventional forces are much, much stronger than much smaller Pakistan's army. And in response to that, the Pakistanis have developed a military doctrine that says that they will resort early on to the use of nuclear weapons, that if Indian conventional forces appear to be poised to score a major victory against Pakistan in a ground war, uh, Pakistan will introduce the use of nuclear weapons and will do it fairly early on in the conflict. Uh, and so it's worth looking at what would happen if these countries use their nuclear arsenals. We have looked extensively at a scenario uh, that is quite conservative. It, it assumes that India and Pakistan each use about 50 Hiroshima-sized bombs against the other country. Now, their current arsenals are, are about 120 weapons in the Pakistani arsenal and about 100 in the Indian arsenal. Many of them are two to three times larger than the Hiroshima bomb. So our scenario is very conservative in terms of the assumptions that it makes about how extensive the fighting would be. Um, the consequences in South Asia are, are unbelievably catastrophic. Uh, 20 to 30 million people in our study are killed in the first week uh, by the explosions, by the fire, by the local radiation. Uh, but, and again, to put this into perspective, using the World War II analogy, uh, in all of World War II, worldwide, about 50 million people died. 
That was over eight years from the first Japanese incursion of Manchuria in 37 to the end of the war in 45. We'd see a similar number of deaths on the same order of magnitude occurring in the, on the course of less than one week under the conditions of a war in South Asia. But these direct uh, effects are only a small part of the story. The problem is that 100 Hiroshima-sized bombs detonated over cities produce about 6.5 million tons of soot that gets lofted into the upper atmosphere. And again, we've, we've done a conservative study assuming that only 5 million tons of soot were generated. Uh, what that does is to block out sunlight across the planet, and it drops global temperatures on average 1.3 degrees centigrade. Uh, and it's a temperature drop that persists, according to the most recent studies that we've done, for up to 25 years. To put this in perspective, over the last 130 years, the global warming, which so much demands our attention, has accounted for a, a rise in temperature of about seven-tenths of a degree. So this would be a, a, an anomaly twice as large occurring in three days. And uh, in the interior regions of the major continents, the temperature drop would be much greater than the 1.3 degree global average. The concern here is that this would shorten the growing season, uh, leading to later frosts in the spring, earlier frosts in the fall. The total amount of sunlight coming in would be decreased, which would cut down on uh, the, the sunlight available for photosynthesis. And precipitation would decrease. When the temperature is cooler in the air, less water evaporates from the ocean to fall back as precipitation. And as a result of all of these factors, uh, there would be a significant decline in food production worldwide. Uh, we have studied so far uh, corn production here in the United States, the world's largest corn producer, and corn, rice, and wheat production in China, the world's largest producer of, uh, of wheat and, uh, and rice. And the effects are, are, are just catastrophic. Here in the United States, corn production goes down about 12% for a decade. In China, rice production goes down about 17% for a decade. Wheat production goes down 31% for a decade. Um, corn production goes down about 15%. These are decreases in food production which are not something which the world can absorb at this point. Uh, world grain reserves at this moment in time amount to only about uh, 80 days' worth of consumption. There's enough food stored to feed the planet for 80 days. And this would be a totally inadequate buffer in the event of a dramatic decrease in food production that lasted not for a single season, but for a decade or more. In addition... Right now, at this moment, there are about 795 million people in the world who are malnourished. They get, on average, about 1,700 calories a day, which is just enough to maintain their body mass and let them do a little bit of work uh, to grow food or to gather food. Uh, these people cannot tolerate a further decline in their food consumption. There are also about 300 million people who live in countries where the average nutrition today is quite good, but where much of the food is imported. And in the world after a limited nuclear war, with the kind of declines in food production that we will see, there will not be international commerce in food. Grain exporting countries, today's grain exporting countries, will suspend their exports in order to be able to feed their own people. So these additional 300 million people living in countries like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Malaysia, most of the countries in the Middle East and North Africa, they too would face starvation. And finally, there are about a billion people in China who are relatively well-nourished well today, who live in a country which grows most of its own food, but in a country which will see huge decreases in food production. And, in, and these billion people have not shared 
in the economic prosperity that the rest of the Chinese population has seen over the last two to three decades. We've concluded that these people also would be at great risk. And so worldwide, we're talking about something like two billion people who'd be at risk of starvation in the aftermath of this limited war taking place in one small localized region of the planet. The death of two billion people is an event unprecedented in human history. It's about a third of the human race. Uh, We would have to expect that an event of this magnitude would lead to the end of modern civilization. There has never been a civilization in human history that has withstood a shock anywhere near this magnitude, and there's no reason to think that we would either. Uh, The international economic order that we all depend on would collapse, and we would lapse into something uh, probably quite similar to the Dark Ages. And this is something that could happen to us while we're sitting here tonight. As I mentioned before, there's fighting every day between India and Pakistan. That's the second form of nuclear danger that we need to worry about. Um, when I talked about the, the scenario that produces this nuclear famine, I, I talked about 100 Hiroshima-sized bombs. It's not just the Indian and Pakistani arsenals that can produce this effect. Each U.S. Trident submarine carries 96 warheads. Not 100, but 96. Each of these is 10 to 50 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. That means that each Trident submarine can produce this same nuclear famine scenario. The United States has 14 of them. Eight of them are based right here across the water at Bangor. Each one of these submarines can cause this global catastrophe. We have 14. It's only a third of our nuclear arsenal. We also have land-based missiles, and we have bombers that carry cruise missiles and gravity bombs. And the Russian arsenal has the same insane level of overkill capacity. So let us consider the greatest nuclear threat we face, the possibility of war between the United States and Russia. You know, for the last 25 years, we've been told we don't need to worry about this. The United States and Russia are not enemies anymore. There's no possibility of war. I was told by the Undersecretary of State for Disarmament as recently as um, a year and a half ago that the United States simply does not consider the possibility of a war with Russia. Well, in the intervening year and a half, events in Syria and especially events in Ukraine have given the lie to the assurances that we have received since the end of the Cold War that we don't need to worry about this possibility. It is clear, I think, to most observers that military conflict between the United States and Russia is indeed possible, and that if that occurs, it is quite possible this will escalate to the use of nuclear weapons. There's been a frightening degree of nuclear saber-rattling on both sides since the Ukraine crisis. Uh, President Putin has been particularly guilty of this, threatening to use nuclear weapons over the conflict there, warning that his country can reduce the United States to nuclear ashes, The United States, for its part, has conducted military exercises very close to the Russian border with forces that were advertised as being nuclear capable. Um, It is a very frightening situation. So let's look at what would happen if those weapons get used. And I want to start um, by describing to you um, the effects of a modern-day attack on a single city. Um, I think most of us are familiar with images of Hiroshima. Uh, wiped flat in in the phrase of of, uh, Dr. Junot, the uh, Red Cross observer on the scene, by the bomb there. That was one single bomb uh, 
a small one by modern standards, about 15 kilotons, 15,000 tons of TNT equivalent. An attack today would not involve a single small bomb. It would involve many bombs much larger. A city like Seattle would probably be attacked, given the number of strategic targets around the city, by 10 to 12, maybe 15 warheads, each of which in the range of 10 to 30 times more powerful than the bomb which destroyed Hiroshima. It's a little bit difficult for me to describe all these bombs going off at once, so I want to use a model of a single explosion. Uh, I'm going to use the model of a single 20 megaton explosion. Uh, The megatonnage here is slightly larger than would actually be deployed against Seattle, but the destruction that I'm going to describe is actually less than we would see if 15 smaller bombs were distributed more evenly over the entire metropolitan area. Um, But I think the model, it's adequate. It gives us an idea of what we're talking about. Within a thousandth of a second of the detonation of this bomb, a fireball would form reaching out for two miles in every direction, four miles across. Within this area, the temperature would rise to 20 million degrees Fahrenheit, which is hotter than the surface of the sun. And everything would be vaporized. The buildings, the trees, the people, the upper level of the earth itself would simply disappear. To a distance of four miles in every direction, the explosion would generate winds greater than 600 miles per hour and blast pressures greater than 25 pounds per square inch. Mechanical forces of this magnitude can destroy anything that human beings can build. To a distance of six miles in every direction, the heat would be so intense that automobiles would melt. And to a distance of 16 miles in every direction, the heat would still be so intense that everything flammable would burn. Buildings, cloth, wood, plastic, heating oil, gasoline, it would all ignite. Hundreds of thousands of fires, which over the next half hour would coalesce into a giant firestorm, 32 miles across, covering over 800 square miles. Within this entire area, the temperature would rise to 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit. All of the oxygen would be consumed, and every living thing would die. In the case of Seattle, we're talking about some 3 million people. In the case of a larger city like New York, the death toll would be 15 million people in a half an hour. And if this attack were part of a general war between the United States and Russia, the same level of destruction would be visited on every major city in both countries, And if NATO were drawn into the conflict, most of the great cities of Europe and Canada as well. A study which we published in 2002 showed that if only 300 warheads in the Russian arsenal got through to urban targets in the United States, something between 75 and 100 million people would die in the first half hour. In addition, the the entire economic infrastructure of the country would be destroyed. Everything that we depend on, you know, we, we... We require an intact society to meet our needs. We don't grow our own food. We're not hunter-gatherers. And that intact infrastructure would simply vanish. There'd be no banking system. There'd be no uh, internet. There'd be no electricity grid. There'd be no no public uh, health system. There'd be no food distribution system, no fuel distribution system. And in the months following this attack, it is probable that the vast majority of the American and Russian population would die from starvation, from exposure the subsequent winter, from radiation poisoning, from epidemic disease. Several hundred million people dead as the direct effects 
of this war. But again, as was the case with the scenario in South Asia, it's the climate effects that are really catastrophic. The war in South Asia puts about 6.5 million tons of soot into the upper atmosphere. A war between the United States and Russia, using just the weapons that will still be available to both countries when the New START Treaty is completely uh, implemented in 2017, that war puts 150 million tons into the upper atmosphere. And it drops temperatures across the planet, not 1.3 degrees centigrade, but 8 degrees centigrade. In the interior regions of North America and Eurasia, the temperatures drop uh, 25 to 30 degrees centigrade. There have, been not, there have not been temperatures on this planet that cold since the coldest point in the last ice age, about 18,000 years ago. In the northern hemisphere, there would be at least two and probably three years without a single day free of frost. That, that means the temperature would go below freezing for at least some point of every day. And that means that the ecosystems which have evolved in the northern hemisphere would collapse because there'd be no spring, no summer, no ability for the, for the plants to grow, for the trees to, to leaf out. Vast numbers of species would become extinct. Food production in the northern hemisphere would stop completely. The vast majority of the human race would starve to death, and it is possible that we would become extinct as a species. Now, this is a danger which we face every day. This is not just some scenario I've cooked up to ruin your evening. Even if we don't stumble into a war in Ukraine or in Syria, there is the ever-present possibility that there will be a war by accident. We know of at least five occasions since 1979 when either Moscow or Washington prepared to launch nuclear war in the mistaken belief that it itself was already under attack by the other side. The most recent of these took place in, that we know about in 1995, a full five years after the end of the Cold War. And on that occasion, the Norwegian government launched a missile to study the Northern Lights. They informed people in Moscow that this was taking place. Somebody in Moscow made a mistake and didn't pass the information on to Russian military radar. And when this four-stage rocket was picked up by Russian radar screens, it was misinterpreted as four warheads tracking towards Moscow and interpreted it to be the first wave of a decapitating NATO strike against Russia. For the only time that we know about during the nuclear weapons era, the console, uh, it's called the nuclear football, the console that the Soviet leadership carries at all times to respond to nuclear attack was activated. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. Boris Yeltsin was wakened up, and he was given a range of options on how to deal with the situation. They went from doing nothing uh, and waiting things out to launching a full-scale nuclear attack against the United States, which at that point, back in 1995, would have involved about 4,000 warheads. Yeltsin should have launched World War III that day, according to existing Russian nuclear doctrine. Both Russia and the United States, then and now, operate under a doctrine called launch on warning, which holds that if you believe that you are subject to an incoming nuclear attack, you launch your own weapons before they're destroyed on the ground. We don't know what happened in the Kremlin that morning. Yeltsin, as you may recall, was a very sick man. He had heart problems, he was on steroids at times, and he also was an alcoholic who was incapacitated by his drinking for days at a time. It is literally possible that he was simply too drunk to make a decision that morning, and that's why we're here today. All that we know is that the Soviet leadership, the Russian leadership rather, decided that morning 
to wait and see what happened. And after a few minutes, it was clear that these blips on the radar screen were not heading towards Moscow. And so the danger passed. January 25th, 1995, was a perfectly normal good day. There was no crisis any place in the world that should have led to fighting between the United States and Russia, let alone to World War III. It was at a time that is much safer than the present moment. India and Pakistan had not tested their nuclear weapons yet. North Korea had not developed its nuclear weapons yet. September 11th hadn't taken place. The United States had not launched these terrible destabilizing wars in the Middle East. Conditions between the United States and Russia were dramatically better than they are today. And yet we came within minutes of launching nuclear war. And the conditions in terms of the technical systems, which existed at that time, which allowed this near disaster, have not changed in any significant way since then. The same kind of accident on a computer could take place today. The difference is that given the increased level of tension between the United States and Russia, the chances are even greater that whichever side thought it was under attack would in fact launch a counterattack rather than sitting back and waiting. And in addition to this potential threat, we are now told by military leaders that there's another dimension to the computer problem, which is that terrorists could potentially hack into command and control computers and cause the launch of a nuclear missile in either the Russian or the U.S. arsenal, thereby almost certainly triggering a nuclear war. So this is a real and present danger, something which should be occupying our attention all the time. But it is important to understand that while this is the future that will be if we don't take action, it is not the future that must be. Nuclear weapons are not a force of nature. They're not an act of God. We have built these with our own hands, and we know how to take them apart. We've dismantled over 50,000 nuclear warheads since the height of the Cold War. We know how to do this. The only thing that's lacking is the political will. And fortunately, on that ground, there is some very hopeful news over the last few years. Um, a movement has started, uh, led by the non-nuclear weapon states, to make the nuclear weapon states honor their responsibilities and negotiate the abolition of their weapons. It's a movement which I think uh, is inspired a great deal by the physicians' movement um, and by the Red Cross in particular. Uh, in 2010, Jakob Kellenberger, then president of the Red Cross, gave a very important speech in Geneva to the diplomatic corps in which he indicated that while the Red Cross had always opposed nuclear weapons, it was now going to make their abolition a key focus of its work internationally. And the next year, 2011, when the Red Cross movement held its biannual meeting, there was a unanimous vote by every single Red Cross, Red Crescent Society in the world to call for the abolition of nuclear weapons and to begin a worldwide educational campaign about what they referred to as the humanitarian impact of nuclear war, what we doctors have called the medical consequences of nuclear war for the last three decades. Unfortunately, the American Red Cross has chosen not to be involved in this campaign. But in many countries around the world, the Red Cross is doing extraordinarily effective work educating people about how dangerous the situation is. Their work, in turn, uh, inspired the non-nuclear weapon states, many of them, to take up this issue. And over the last several years, there have been a series of extraordinary governmental conferences focused on the humanitarian impact of nuclear war. The first was in Oslo in March of 2013. It brought together 120 countries. 
It was actively boycotted by the United States and the other four members of the UN Security Council, the five permanent members who are all the major nuclear powers, U.S., Russia, China, Britain, and France. Uh, Despite that boycott, perhaps in part because of that boycott, which underlined the urgency of non-nuclear weapon states providing leadership, uh, the conference was a tremendous success and led to a follow-up meeting uh, a year later in Nayarit, Mexico, at which over 130 countries attended and again spent several days examining what would happen if these weapons are actually used and what therefore needs to be done. The final meeting, shown on the slide, took place in Vienna in December of 2014. Uh, 158 countries attended this time, more than three three quarters of the countries in the world. And this time the United States and Great Britain did attend, although they mainly played a spoiler role at the meeting. Uh, Despite their efforts, uh, the meeting ended with an inspiring call by the Austrian government to close the gap in international law, which does not prohibit, does not ban the possession of nuclear weapons. All other indiscriminate weapons are banned under international law. Chemical weapons, biological weapons, cluster bombs, landmines, they're all defined as being too inhumane, too indiscriminate in their effect to be tolerated. And yet nuclear weapons, the most dangerous weapons of all, are not explicitly banned. And so the Austrians said we need to close this gap in international law and ban these weapons as a way of putting pressure on the nuclear weapon states to actually eliminate their arsenals. So far, this pledge, that's been called the Humanitarian Pledge, has been endorsed by over 140 countries. And at a vote at the UN General Assembly last fall, an open-ended working group was established to meet in Geneva to figure out how to, in fact, close the legal gap. Uh, The the working group had its first meeting last month. Uh, Its second and most important substantive meeting will take place the first two weeks of May. Uh, Again, the United States is boycotting this event. Uh, But the 100-plus countries who are there are engaging in a serious conversation about what steps should take place next. And what is almost certain to emerge is a call for a new treaty which bans nuclear weapons and defines their possession as being illegal, and brands the countries which continue to hold on to these weapons as rogue states, states that exist in violation of international law. There has not been a movement of this magnitude in the international community since the Cold War, and it is terribly important that we do whatever we can to support this initiative. Physicians for Social Responsibility and our global federation, IPPNW, have in the last uh, four or five years created a global network Uh, an umbrella group uh, called the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which now involves over 450 NGO organizations in 95 countries across the planet. This network uh, is led, interestingly, mainly by young people, uh, some of the ICANN leaders strategizing at the last meeting uh, uh, at the UN, Um, and it has had an enormous impact. Uh, It has been responsible for bringing many countries into the fold getting many countries to endorse the pledge and to attend these, the meeting in Geneva. Uh, and it is, I think, an enormously positive and hopeful development. Now, on the flip side, on the negative side, is the continued intransigence of the United States and the other nuclear weapon states. Far from conceding the need to get rid of these weapons, all nine of the nuclear weapon states are currently engaged in active plans to modernize their nuclear arsenals. In the case of the United States, it is estimated that we will be spending if we don't change the policy, we'll be spending a trillion dollars over the next 30 years to rebuild every single component of our nuclear arsenal, the submarines, the land-based missiles, 
the strategic bombers and the weapons that they carry. This modernization plan is quite simply utterly incompatible with our treaty obligation to negotiate the abolition of our nuclear arsenal. And that is the great debate that is, needs to take place in this country. Are we going to modernize our arsenals at a cost of a trillion dollars and pledge ourselves to continue relying on nuclear weapons uh, in some way? Or are we going to choose the opposite path and work towards their abolition? It is a great disappointment that in this presidential election year, this debate is not taking place. It's part of our job to make sure that it does. Um, I think we have to understand the enormity of the moment that we're in right now. It is truly a turning point. On the one hand, we have the most important disarmament initiative in a generation. On the other hand, we have plans to utterly defeat the aims of that movement by building a new nuclear arsenal. And it is a very stark choice that we face. And depending on the choice that we take, I think all else will follow. We have acted as though we can continue to maintain nuclear arsenals and have the world that we know continue. I would argue that simply isn't possible. We have been spectacularly lucky over the last 70 years that there has not been a nuclear war. And we have to, we have to recognize that. We are here today because we've been lucky. Reliance on continued good luck is simply not an acceptable policy for the future. We have to understand that if these weapons continue to exist, it is only a matter of time until they're used, and that if they're used, they're going to destroy everything that we hold precious. I think there are three reasons why we have not acted more decisively to get rid of these weapons, and let me just go through them very quickly. First, there is the general disbelief that this can actually happen. None of us really in our hearts believe that nuclear war can take place. We look at the world we live in every day, and we just can't imagine it being destroyed in the way that it will. But if we look around the history of the last hundred years, we see many, many examples of communities who thought that their existence couldn't be threatened, though utterly destroyed by war. And we're no different. And we have to understand that. And we have to figure out how to convince the rest of our citizens and our leaders that, in fact, this is what's going to happen if we don't take action. Secondly, I think we don't begin to understand how bad the use of nuclear weapons would be. There's a whole extensive you know, uh, uh, literature and, and, and discography and filmography of, uh, of uh, apocalyptic stories and, and, and tales. Uh, and we've all seen them, and we all kind of have some idea of how horrible the future might look. But we don't really get it. Um, we still sort of imagine that somehow it won't be quite that horrible. And so the information that I was presenting earlier I think is terribly important to get out. People need to understand just how bad these weapons are, just how complete the destruction will be. And third, we have to deal with the fact that for many people, there is still the notion that somehow or other nuclear weapons protect us, that they make us more secure. I think it's, it's easy to understand where this false idea comes from. Throughout much of human history, stronger weapons did tend to make us safer. Uh, you know, If you're walking down a street and some person who you think is potentially an enemy is coming towards you with a big stick, 
If you have an even bigger stick, you're a little bit safer. The trouble is that with nuclear weapons, that logic just doesn't apply anymore. These are not weapons which make us secure. The use of our own nuclear weapons will destroy us. They are suicide bombs. And our thinking hasn't caught up with that. We still view them as potential uh, potential instruments of, of our safety and security. And we have to get beyond that. And again, I think the key to that goes back to, to the second point I was making a minute ago. It goes back to the need for to fully understand what's going to happen if these weapons are used. There are leaders in nuclear weapon states who truly believe that they can use their nuclear arsenal and achieve some desirable outcome and don't understand that if they use their nuclear weapons, they will be uh, relegating their own country to destruction. So we need to deal with these three obstacles that stand in the way, and we need to create a movement, as we had back in the 1980s, that puts pressure on our leaders, and we need to talk directly to the leadership and ask them to do what they're supposed to do, provide leadership on this issue, because they're not at this point. Um, Are we going to be successful? I can't promise that we will. Uh, It's not at all clear to me that we're going to survive this crisis. What I can say is if we don't try, nuclear war is going to be our fate. And what I can also say is that we have every reason to believe that if we work very hard, we can change things because we've done it once before. In the 1980s, we were marching towards nuclear war and we stopped that and we saved the world. And we can and must do that again. When I talk to college audiences and high school audiences, I always invoke uh, the Lord of the Ring um, because everybody is pretty familiar with this story at this point. Um, I think it's instructive. Um, you know, nuclear weapons are the closest we've ever come on this planet to building a ring of power. Uh, and the desperate struggle to rid our planet of these weapons is every bit as heroic, every bit as grand, and every bit as dangerous as the struggle to rid Middle Earth of the Ring of Power. The only real difference is that the Fellowship of the Ring involved just a handful of people and elves and dwarves. Our fellowship really requires the involvement of all of us. No one of us can do this job by ourselves, but each one of us needs to do that part of the job which is ours to do. And that's the challenge before all of us. Um, When I speak to audiences, I always feel a little bit of guilt because by telling people who may not have known about this stuff before, by telling them about this, I I put a real burden on their shoulders. And and I've done that to you all tonight if you weren't previously aware of this information. Once you know about the danger we face, you have a responsibility to take action. You know, If you see somebody fall down on the street, you can't just walk over them. You have to help pick them up. If you know that your planet is in danger, you have to take action about this. And that's a great burden. And it's a burden that's not going to go away until we get rid of these weapons. But I also think that this responsibility is a great gift. Every one of us wants to have a worthwhile life. We want to do something good with our life. And we've been given the opportunity to save the world, which is a very good thing to do. So I think the challenge for all of us is to take on this burden to do what we can to eliminate these weapons, to build the movement that will succeed, and at the end of our lives to be able to look back and say, in honesty, we helped to save the world. Thanks very much.
And the last slide is one which I meant to put up as I was closing. This is what it's all about. Um, these, the millions of children around the world uh, can't save the world. They depend on us to do it. So, comments, please. Well, thank you very much for uh, very sobering and important uh, presentation. Thank you very much. I've got two questions. First, why, in your view, is President Obama going ahead with this retooling of the nuclear armaments? And the second thing is, for each one of us here tonight, what do you think we can, what, what can I do? What can each one of us do? Uh, first question about President Obama, I don't have a clue what's going on in this man's head. Uh, at Prague in 2009, he said that he sought the security of a world free of nuclear weapons. And he negotiated a very important treaty with the Russians right after that to cut the size of our arsenal significantly, a very important step towards nuclear abolition. And since then, he's basically abandoned that position. Uh, there have been no significant further initiatives from this administration. When you ask the administration, they respond that... Uh, they would like to move further, but the Russians and the Republicans are the obstacle. Um, I don't think that's true anymore. I think the Obama administration is part of the obstacle as well because they have made it clear that they do not seek a world free of nuclear weapons, that like previous administrations and like the governments in the other nuclear weapon states, they view nuclear weapons still as an important component of national power which they're not willing to give up. And I think that's really the unfortunate bottom line. Uh, it's a weird phenomenon that we see all the time where people who are in power suffer from the illusion that they can control these weapons and uh, use them to secure national ends that they, that they seek to secure. When they leave power, they often undergo this amazing conversion. And there are, there are scores of, of former military leaders, people like Henry Kissinger, architect of our nuclear policy, He's not in power anymore. He's terrified of nuclear war and thinks we need to get rid of all the nuclear weapons. Um, I mean, there's, there's a long list of these people, and, and the, the way power seduces these people, it really does go back to the Lord of the Ring. I guess when you're wearing the ring, you, you think that you, that you can use it uh, for good. Um, but beyond that, I really don't know what, what to think of, of Obama's behavior. What can each one of us do? I think it, it depends a lot, and it's part of the job for you just to figure out what can we do. Uh, we all belong to social networks, and we need to figure out how to mobilize them to amplify our voice. The information that I presented tonight is generally not known anymore. Um, there's a whole generation that's grown up since the end of the Cold War that was never taught anything about nuclear weapons uh, and is uh, very uh, ignorant is a pejorative word, but that's, they're ignorant about this. They simply don't know what nuclear weapons will do. There's a, you know, people of my generation who knew this stuff well in the 80s for the most part, we've all forgotten it because, um, you know, it's been a long time since this has been an, an, an object of public discourse. So I think the first thing that we need to do is to educate people. We need to get this information about the enormity of this danger out to the general population, to our decision makers. And how we do this, each one of us depends on what our situation is. Uh, if you are part of a some kind of a, a, of a civic group or a church group, a local PSR chapter here has many people who uh, speak about this issue and would be happy to provide speakers to basically any venue that, that is available. Um, if you have connections with our political leadership, um, sit down and talk with them about it. Um, if you belong to uh, groups that might take a position about this, um, you know, again, churches have, for the most part, 
Uh, most church groups nationally have taken a position about nuclear war strongly in favor of the abolition of these weapons, but aren't acting on those positions. So, you know, if you belong to a church, agitate within your church for the church as an organization to be more active. Uh, we've done a lot of work with Rotary clubs around the world. Uh, Rotary is, uh, after the Red Cross, the, the largest NGO in the world, and we are trying to encourage Rotary to take a position about this. Um, and whatever, whatever connections you have, use them. And if, you have, if you're of my age, but you know younger people, ask the younger people to show you how to use social media so you can get uh, your views out that way as well. Yeah. ago I found out that, and maybe I was the last one to find out, that our nuclear weapon labs are all privatized. Los Alamos, Lawrence Livermore, and Sandia Labs in New Mexico. And they're now, quote, private companies that were taken over, I, as I understand, in the mid-90s that they were privatized. And so they're getting billions of dollars. Their only source of income is the U.S. government. And they're working uh, aggressively to continue what they're doing. Uh, there was just a recently an article in the Foreign Policy magazine showing the development and improvement of the B61-12 bomb that you can just dial a load. You can change the load, which makes it more easy to use. You know, what do you know about privatization? And, I mean, it seems that we have to have something to tell these people. I mean, they're looking to train engineers so we can keep this understanding of how to build yeah. nuclear bombs. I mean, the, the good news about nuclear weapons in terms of our being able to get rid of them is, uh, as opposed to climate change, which requires very, very extensive changes in the whole economy, the nuclear industry is a very tiny industry, and we could eliminate it with minimal national economic impact. The problem is that that small segment of the economy is highly organized and has a very uh, vested interest in maintaining the flow of dollars uh, to the labs, and um, so there is a very organized uh, financial constituency that is actively working to promote this very crazy plan to spend a trillion dollars. And it's not just the labs. It's also the weapons producers and, and the big uh, uh, aerospace companies that will be making the, you know, the missiles and the submarines and, and so on. So um, as has been the case with so many aspects of our, of our political culture over the last several decades... Uh, the public discourse has been terribly corrupted by the influence of money here, uh, and we just have to recognize that, uh, that there is a small but very wealthy, very entrenched uh, um, interest that is trying to keep us on the path of, of nuclear weapons, uh, and we're going to have to oppose that. Even before the privatization of the labs, there was always the problem with the aerospace companies, which were, you know, that the perfect defense system was one which had uh, components built, built or assembled in each of the 50 states so that there was always a lobby for in every congressman's district uh, to keep that plan going, no matter how stupid it was or how much it, it even undermined our national security. Yeah, in the back. Hi, uh, Steve. We're working as our uh, great talk. We really appreciate you around talking to us about this. I wonder if you know, this may have the twang, you've got the submarine, you've got the missiles, you've got the air the bomb, and we all have limited time. Which one of those three would you say is most vulnerable to us shutting down? Um, well, at the moment, I think the effort is being focused on the new cruise missile, the long-range standoff cruise missile, um, which has been sort of the, the, the NGO community that works on this has kind of targeted that as the 
place to try to chip away a piece of, of the modernization. But I, I kind of think in some ways, well, that, that's a reasonable thing to do. Uh, it, it's a very limited approach. Um, we can't afford to have you know, a series of tiny battles over each different weapon system. What we need to have and what we need to create is a national debate about this. Are we going to go ahead with this whole crazy modernization plan or are we going to move in a different direction? And it's interesting. I, I was talking to, to Bruce Amundsen over dinner tonight. In a sense, this modernization plan has given us a real opportunity because it's been very hard to initiate a national debate about nuclear weapons policy. But by proposing this enormous expenditure, the government, in a sense, is doing just that. They're initiating this debate. And so I think it's for us to try to frame this uh, as that choice. It's not just this weapon or that weapon. It's do we spend a trillion dollars and commit ourselves to maintaining a nuclear arsenal for the next 50 or 60 years, a path which will almost certainly lead to nuclear weapon, its use, nuclear war, or do we commit ourselves as a country to working for the abolition of these weapons? And I think that's, that's the debate that we want to have. But in terms of the specific weapon system that is probably going to be the focus of attention, it's the long-range standoff cruise missile. Um, and the reason for that is that it's, it's seen very much as a warfighting uh, weapon. This is not a, a deterrent weapon. This is something you use to attack another country. And um, the, the feeling is that this is a very destabilizing weapon that, uh, that tends to make the other side much more nervous and much more likely to use its nuclear weapons early on. Yes? Could you say something about the Korean issue? It seems that that's outside of the logic that you described. Uh, Korea is both a, a huge problem and I think also, unfortunately, a huge distraction from the real problem. Um, and, and it's both of these things at the same time. Uh, let me just talk about the distraction part first because I think one of the problems is, is that whenever we try to raise the need to get rid of nuclear weapons uh, with the administration, uh, or with many parts of the public, what they come back is, but what about Korea? What about previously until last fall? What about Iran? Um, and while these are real problems, both of them, um, as I think the information I presented makes clear, um, the real issue is that the arsenals that exist already in the major nuclear weapon states, including the smaller ones like India and Pakistan. Having said that, North Korea is a real problem. It is a very unstable regime, which we don't understand well, which we seem to have very little ability to influence, which probably has built a small number of nuclear weapons. We're not sure exactly what they have and, and if it's something they can actually deliver as opposed to burying in the ground and blowing up. Um, but probably they are getting to a point where they're going to be able to have a deliverable nuclear weapon. And even if it doesn't threaten the United States directly, and it may, but at the moment we don't think it does, um, it is certainly a very real threat to South Korea and to Japan, and it is driving forces in both of those countries, which are advocating for those countries to develop their own nuclear arsenals as accounted to the North Korean uh, weapons program. So it, it threatens not only to... Uh, potentially lead to a short-term military uh, catastrophe, but also to spur a whole new arms race in, in Northeast Asia involving countries like Japan, which have made a real point of not developing nuclear weapons, although they clearly have the ability to do so very rapidly if they want to. How do we deal with North Korea? Uh, I have no idea. 
I mean, this is way outside my area of expertise. Uh, unfortunately, it appears to be outside of the area of expertise of everybody. And I don't think anybody has a plan of what to do about this regime right now. Um, I think the the, the, the the bottom line takeaway I would take from the North Korean situation is just to that it emphasizes the inherent instability of a situation in which nuclear technology uh, is allowed to proliferate. Uh, the North Koreans built their weapon from what was supposed to be a civilian reactor to produce electricity, and they have made very clearly uh, the point that any nuclear power plant is potentially usable for the development of nuclear weapons. And the current U.S. policy of promoting the um, export of nuclear reactors all around the world uh, is directly at odds with our national security interest of preventing the further proliferation of nuclear weapons. But um, unfortunately, I don't have a good answer at all to the question you're raising about what do we do about this current situation in North Korea. I don't think India-Pakistan is a distraction. I think India-Pakistan is an existential threat to human survival. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think, I think we, we ignore the situation in South Asia at grave peril. The, you're quite right, I think, in what you were saying, though, which is that India and Pakistan, um, they're not going to move to get rid of their arsenals unless there's real leadership from the United States. And, and you, know, you can trace the chain back. The Pakistanis built their arsenal because of the Indian arsenal. The Indians built their arsenal because of the Chinese arsenal. The Chinese built their arsenal because of the U.S. arsenal. And so in that sense, you know, that, that's, that's where this all comes from. Um, and uh, the U.S. needs, along with everybody else in the world, to understand the grave threat that the, that the situation in South Asia poses to all of us. Well, yeah. Um, Israel and Pakistan and North Korea, I think, are going to be the three most difficult countries to deal with uh, in this whole situation. Um, we talk about nuclear weapons as being a deterrent. In fact, none of the other nuclear weapon states really view their nuclear arsenals as a deterrent. They view them as uh, extensions of national power. These three countries do view themselves as facing existential threats either to the country in the case of Pakistan and Israel, or to the regime in the case of North Korea. And they view their nuclear weapons as something of a hedge against those threats. So I think to get these, these three states uh, to abandon their nuclear arsenals is going to require significant work on the local security issues that they face. I mean, to just the, 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 the government, the, the regime in North Korea has got to feel that it is not threatened by external overthrow. And Pakistan and Israel have to feel secure that their national s survival is not at stake before they're going to give up their arsenals. Um, and that's going, to be, that's going to be part of this process. And obviously these are both very difficult situations, very complicated situations, and it speaks to how complicated the process is going to be um, of getting rid of these weapons. But again, um, it's going to start with leadership from the United States, I think, as the largest uh, power in the world and one of the two great nuclear powers. 
and the only one that's likely to provide leadership on this. And so we have a special responsibility here to, to get our government to take action. And then part of that action is going to have to be figuring out uh, how to unravel the situation in Kashmir and the other issues between India and Pakistan and how to unravel the situation between Israel and Palestine. How do you analyze the um, Iranian nuclear materials deal? Do you see a positive direction in this? And maybe there were compromises that were really made because the labs and some of the retired military and some of the military that's presently still in power approved of, of the negotiations and supported them. And, and I was also surprised to see that some of the lab personnel made personal speeches in support of the, of the Iranian nuclear deal. What's your take on it? And what, how do you see that fitting into destabilizing? Yeah. What kind of compromises might have been made? I think that the deal on balance is a very good and positive development. Um, whatever the origin of the Iranian nuclear program was in terms of what motivated it, uh, its existence was profoundly destabilizing. Uh, and it almost certainly, had they proceeded to develop nuclear weapons, or if they do in the future, uh, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt will almost certainly follow suit. And it's interesting that these countries have not felt so threatened by the Israeli arsenal that they've built nuclear weapons, they do feel that threatened by the Iranian arsenal. That's something that we simply have to, have to acknowledge as, as a fact uh, in the Middle East situation. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's very important. This deal was a very positive step in the right direction. Uh, and you know, the alternative uh, to concluding this deal probably would have been a nuclear-armed Iran by the end of this calendar year. Um, and so delay, even if we just have delayed that for 10 years, that's an enormous accomplishment because it gives us lots of room to work. And Iran is a, you know, it's a country where 60% of the population is under 25. Uh, much of the uh, youth in Iran do not have uh, strong allegiance to the current regime. And there's reason to hope that, that there'll be political evolution in Iran and that 10 years from now we'll be dealing with a country that is less likely uh, to develop nuclear weapons when this deal expires. So I think it's a huge positive step. Uh, as to what deals the administration might have made to get s domestic support for it, I really don't know. Clearly, to get um, you know, support for the New START Treaty, uh, the administration concluded a really horrible bargain uh, that has led to the current modernization plans. So I, I, I certainly am open to the idea that they may have been behind the deal, behind closed-door deals made uh, with the lab personnel to get their support uh, for this, but I don't know about it first, you know, directly. Yes? Hi. I don't really know a lot about nuclear war or nuclear energy, and I was curious, hypothetically, optimistically, if we managed to get rid of all the nuclear war heads and the arsenal and the personnel materials, would we need to talk about nuclear um, power at some point, or is that a completely separate topic? Um, I think it's, it's a related but somewhat separate topic. Um, you know, as I just uh, suggested a few minutes ago, there's a, there's a huge overlap in the technology. And one of the, the problems with nuclear power plants is that basically the same technology that allows you to build those plants uh, enables you to uh, get the materials out of them needed to build nuclear weapons. And so there, there's a real, uh, they're kind of joined at the hip in that sense. Uh, nuclear power plants pose some very significant risks of their own in terms of 
catastrophic accidents like Fukushima and Chernobyl, um, and the ongoing uh, problems, health problems associated with the handling of radioactive materials. Um, so, you know, personally, I think it's very important that we get rid of nuclear power as well, because it is the gateway to future development of nuclear weapons. But I think that you know they are somewhat separate in a sense, in that right at the moment, the real focus I think needs to be on changing our thinking about nuclear weapons and moving very rapidly towards lowering the danger of the use of the weapons. Can you comment on the Yeah, uh, ICANN is one of the most in, uh, encouraging developments over the last several years. Uh, this was uh, uh, the the uh, the thought, the, the original idea for this came from a fellow named Ron McCoy, who's a great leader of IPPNW, who despite his name is Malaysian. Uh, and Ron, after the collapse of the 2005 Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference, which ended in chaos, you know, said, we, we've got to do something to jumpstart the, the movement to get rid of nuclear weapons. We need to start an international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. And IPPNW took this up uh, and started this organization back in 2007. It was initially formed in Australia by our very strong uh, affiliate there. And uh, in 2010, we opened up an office in Europe as well, in Geneva, and it has just grown enormously. As I mentioned, there are over 400, about 450 member NGO organizations around the world. Uh, they range from traditional peace organizations to large labor unions. Uh, the, the largest bank in Norway is, is a member of the ICANN network. The established church in Norway is a member of the network. Uh, various other church groups are part of this. Uh, and it, it's not an organization. It's not even a coalition. It is literally just a campaign. It has a small staff in Geneva, and it works to, through all these various NGOs to promote the idea of a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Um, and it's been, it's been you know, quite successful. The ICANN team played a, a very, very large role in recruiting countries to sign on to the Austrian pledge to close the legal gap and played a very important role at, uh, at the recent uh, open-ended working group meeting in Geneva. So uh, it's very encouraging. We, there, there are PSR in the United States as part of the ICANN campaign worldwide, as there are a number of other groups here in the U.S. And a number of countries? Excuse me? A number of the countries signed on and so on? A number of countries... To the, the pledge? Yeah. Uh, at this point, it's, uh, depending how you count it, it's 140-something countries have signed the pledge. Um, so, um, you know, again, it's about three-quarters of the countries of the world have committed to uh, a closing the legal gap and negotiating some kind of a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Um, this, this is a huge step forward, and it's amazing because it's a total press blackout about this in the United States. I mean, there, there's like no coverage at all about this. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the press continues to ignore this once actual negotiations begin for the treaty. Um, but so far, they've just really ignored this completely. Yes.
Yeah, I mean, there's several several things about that that view of things that I think are, are wrong. Uh, one is the idea that that no one ever intends to use them. Um, the there is a popular notion that the U.S. in particular, we as Americans have this view, only holds on to its nuclear weapons to deter other countries with nuclear weapons from attacking us. In fact, the United States not only used nuclear weapons during World War II, but has threatened to use them repeatedly since then and against countries that didn't have nuclear weapons. We threatened to use them against China during the Korean War. We actually planned to use them against Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Uh, We threatened to use them during the Iranian uh, Revolution in 1978, and George Bush refused to take them off the table in the lead-up to the Iraq War in 2003. Uh, We also threatened at one point to use them against Libya. So um, as uh, an ICANN activist in New York says, we haven't detonated a nuclear explosion, a nuclear bomb, since Nagasaki, but we use them all the time. We use them to threaten and to bully and to get our way in the world. Um, So that's one thing that that people need to understand. Second, for deterrence to work, uh, as uh, as, as it's claimed it does, the countries that have nuclear weapons have to be willing to use their weapons in retaliation. That means they have to have them ready to be used all the time. And that means that given that we're human beings and we're not perfect, at some point a mistake is going to get made and someone is going to use these weapons, whether they intend to or not. And it really, I mean, that, that it's only a matter of time. Uh, and as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this system uh, has brought us to within minutes of nuclear war uh, at least five times that we know about. There are probably others that are still classified. Uh, and so it is a system which needs to work perfectly all the time, but we're not perfect, our technology isn't perfect, and it isn't going to work perfectly all the time. It is going to break down at some point. And if it breaks down even once, it's the end of human civilization. So um, I think that's the answer that we have to give to people who say that deterrence um, you know, is useful. It's all, the argument is also made, you know, it's kept the peace since the end of World War II. Uh, I mean, two points about that. Number one, it has not been a particularly peaceful time since the end of World War II. Uh, there have been many, many wars, uh, including proxy wars between the major nuclear powers. And number two, there have been other periods in human history from... 1815, the end of the Napoleonic Wars, till 1914, 99 years without a, a general war. Uh, there were some smaller wars, but without a general war in Europe. That wasn't kept by nuclear, that peace wasn't kept by, by nuclear arsenals. It was kept by countries working very hard to not go to war. Uh, we don't need nuclear weapons to prevent war, and we can't rely on them because sooner or later that, that system is just going to fail. Uh, the most important argument, I think, is that um, it deterrence, if it if, it, if we're going to have a system with nuclear weapons uh, in large numbers deployed around the world, the system has to be perfect, and that's not something which we can create. Our system, we know, is not perfect. Um, regarding the campaign, which you're suggesting, national campaign, international campaign, um, besides people in the streets and people who become more knowledgeable what about allies such as retired military people in the United States that see, them, see what's going on on the inside? And how do we approach them uh, to work with them in presentations and to reach the public with people that have had direct experience and are willing to speak out? 
Well, there are a number of retired military figures who have been quite vocal and really played a very important role in educating us all about the, the near misses, about the inherent weaknesses in, in the system, uh, and in, in advocating very strongly for the abolition of nuclear weapons. The idea that, that terrorists might be able to hack into our command and control systems was surfaced primarily by Admiral Cartwright, the former commander of strategic forces. Um, a number of these people are actively working on this issue already, um, and uh, you know, I, I think we, we need to take advantage of them and provide venues for them to get their message out. Um, they're very, some of them are very eloquent. Lee Butler, another former commander of Strategic Air Command, has just published his memoirs. Uh, he's not doing public speaking anymore for health reasons, but um, you know, has been a, a passionate advocate of the abolition of nuclear weapons uh, from the vantage point of somebody who used to command our strategic forces. Uh, this phenomenon of the uh, converted former nuclear uh, warfighter uh, is very important and one which I think we need to highlight and take advantage of. Yeah. 15,800 nuclear weapons. How does one who have a disarmament total, disarmament doesn't leave one out of the 15,800? I'm not sure that it does. Um, but as horrible as the use of one nuclear weapon would be, that's not the problem that we face today. We face the use of thousands of these weapons. And uh, if we were able to eliminate all the nuclear weapons in the world and one country still had a nuclear weapon, that would be bad. But it wouldn't be nearly as bad as the situation we have right now. Um, having said that, obviously we're going to have to do everything we possibly can to make sure there is no, tr no cheating on the treaty. And the ultimate treaty, not the treaty to ban nuclear weapons that we're talking about now, which is primarily a political document, but the Nuclear Weapons Convention that sets forward the exact timetable and concrete steps for abolishing the nuclear arsenals. This is going to have to be a very hard-nosed document uh, with rigorous enforcement, rigorous uh, verification procedures, and rigorous penalties uh, for anybody who tries to cheat on the treaty. Uh, and it's probably going to have to envision the use of substantial conventional military force against anybody who is felt to be cheating. Um, it's not going to be a warm, fuzzy document. Um, again, um, there are no guarantees here. Uh, can we promise that we will be absolutely able to get rid of uh, every last weapon? We can't. What we can say is that if we get very, very close, the world is going to be a whole lot safer than it is right now. Um, when we get down to the last ten weapons, um, it's, going to get, it's going to be difficult. I would much rather be there than where we are today. Uh, in the back, and then you. Um, I just want to come back to nuclear power for a second. Washington State has come to generate station that wants nuclear power plant in Washington State. There's a group that's trying hard to shut that plant down, in part because it is used to educate people about the disasters that unfold from nuclear power. We've got you know, Chernobyl, we've got Fukushima, we've got Three Island. We've got, which speaks your point, that a lot of ways things go wrong. So I think that, you know, I think the numbers think that we need to be focusing on the broader picture of nuclear, anything, whether it's nuclear waste or nuclear power or nuclear weapons, at least sort of abolish all at the same time. I mean, I agree with that. I, I, I certainly favor the abolition of nuclear power as well. I do think that um, there 
is a real urgency about focusing on the weapons and getting people to understand the truly existential threat they pose. Uh, nuclear power plants in and of themselves, aside from their role in, in promoting nuclear w weapons, uh, pose some very horrible threats to the environment and to human populations. But they don't threaten the survival of the human race. They don't threaten the end of our civilization. Nuclear weapons do that. And we have to really take that to heart. Um, this is um, nuclear weaponry is in a category of its own. The only thing which is on anywhere near comparable is climate change. Uh, and climate change, uh, you know, frankly, the way that climate change is most likely to have its ultimate negative impact on humans is by triggering nuclear war, uh, by, by creating, you know, even more unfavorable conditions in places like South Asia and the Middle East that put even greater stresses on the political uh, conflicts that exist there now and increasing the chances that nuclear weapons get used. So I think we need to be very hard-headed about this. Um, uh, in, the, in the 1980s, Bernie Lown, who is the founder of uh, the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, used to always say, the world is full of woes. There are many problems facing mankind. If we get rid of nuclear weapons, we'll have time to deal with all of them. One last thing I need to say in closing. Um, when you leave here tonight, what is going to happen is that you're going to begin to start forgetting everything I've just said. Um, it's not just the usual process of, you know, lots of things enter your mind. You can't hold on to everything you forget. There's an active erasure that goes on. Uh, this stuff is incredibly unpleasant to think about. And our minds don't like thinking about it, and they actively work to put it aside. Please do not let that happen. The only way we're going to get out of this situation is if lots and lots of people start to think about this, put this information in the part of their brain that affects their behavior, and wake up every morning and saying, among all the other things I need to do today, what do I need to do to help get rid of nuclear weapons? That's the mindset that millions of people had back in the 1980s, and we need to recreate that. And the key to it is holding on to this horrible information, as painful as it is. So please, don't forget Thanks. So um, in that spirit, um, keep in touch with us. Leave, leave us an email um, so that uh, WPSR can uh, inform you about what is going on with our organization and our coalition partners, um, uh, opportunities to meet with legislators uh, and, and others. So... Um, Keep, keep it in mind and, and keep in touch with us. Thank you all for coming. Dr. Ira Helfand spoke at Town Hall Seattle on March 20th. Thank you again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. For KUOW's Speakers Forum, I'm John O'Brien. <laughs>